For centuries, people have had a fascination with gemstones. They've inspired myths, been used for medicinal purposes, as well as to create jewelry. After all, a kiss on the hand may be quite continental, but diamonds are a girl's best friend, or so sang Marilyn Monroe. But where do gems that wind up on your ring or necklace come from? And how do they form? I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're digging into the world of gems and minerals with Dr. George Harlow. He's a curator emeritus in the American Museum of Natural History's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Division of Physical Sciences. Dr. Harlow joins us to talk about his own journey in geology, as well as the reopening of the museum's Allison and Roberto Mignone Halls of Gems and Minerals. The 11,000 square foot halls are now back in business after a major overhaul. Dr. Harlow, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure. So what story does the Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals tell? It's not a single story. It's it's many stories. But certainly the focus is to explain what minerals are and um, the environments in which they occur on Earth and to show the fabulous variety and actual beauty of the uh, mineral specimens as well as put gems into the context, mostly of being fashioned from mineral specimens. So if you were to have a school group come through, how do you describe that to them, what minerals are and this part of the story? Well, we have one end of the hall, which actually, I mean, well, actually the two ends of the hall are designed to deal with those questions. First, what is a mineral? What is a crystal? What is a rock? Um, has there's a video to kind of explain these and we use as a signature substance. Ice is an example of a mineral. My feeling is if people can understand that ice is a mineral, we've made a big progress. So then we also have mineral properties, which is a traditional way of, of being able to identify minerals and as well as understand their value to society and actually to life on earth. So that being said, what is a mineral specifically? Well, there's a little bit of a debate going on now as how broad you want to define it. Um, In general, it's any natural occurring substance that is crystalline, that is that it has an organized interior, the atoms are arranged in a geometric pattern that repeats in space, essentially infinitely in terms of the size of atoms compared to the size of most mineral specimens. And, um, and so that really, and that those crystalline objects usually have a, a, a chemical formula by which you can define them. And how does that differ from a gem? Uh, a gem is, is essentially any attractive material that can be fashioned into an ornamental object, particularly by polishing and using, uh, utilizing the optical properties t- to make it sparkle. But it's essentially... A gem is a naturally beautiful substance that is fashioned for use in adornment. How many specimens do you have on display in the hall? So there are about 5,200 objects because not all of them are specimens. Some of them are are like artifacts. Uh, We have 5,000 mineral and gem specimens in the hall, which vastly exceeds the number of specimens in any other hall in the museum, we have much bigger specimens than some other halls, the dinosaurs in particular. But uh, in terms of the just vast array, um, really, this this really 
beats everything. What are among the standout objects there? Well, we have some signature objects. So when you enter the hall from the meteorite hall, you'll see this um, very large amethyst geode that um, when you look into it, if you get close and look into it, it really looks like a, a galaxy of stars with a purple background. It's, it's really spectacular, both in terms of that um, eye-catching capacity, uh, the color, and then the beauty that it has. So on its opposite side is another amethyst geode. Bo both are from Uruguay. And we have the one on the other side because our president kind of said, well, the back of these things isn't very interesting. So if we put two back to back, then you'll always have something good to look at, not just a, kind of a large gray mass. So that's one of, there are quite a few objects. One of the things that I think people will be really stunned by is we have a hall that, a small gallery that deals with the optical properties of minerals, including fluorescence. And so we went out to the Sterling Hill mine in um, Hogginsburg, New Jersey, and what I call harvested a giant slab about 12 feet by eight feet across from an outcrop there. That place is known as the fluorescent mineral capital of the world. So this giant, literally piece of rock fluoresces bright orange and, and green and is stunning to observe. But from my perspective, it also tells the geological story of how it was formed in the sense of it was, you can see layering in it and that's because it was laid down as sediment, piled up in layers. And then the rest of the hall deals with other aspects of why minerals are colorful or why they're brilliant or have sparkle when they're fasted into gems. And so it's designed to be my little physics hall to deal with optical physics. And I think we've done a pretty good job of trying to explain what the optical effects are, what causes them. It sounds like words can't do these objects justice. You have to see them. Indeed. This is, you know, one time when um, reality is better than our ideas of virtual reality. I don't mind showing things in virtual reality, but the, the, the viewer, when the viewer can see things and move around and get perspectives on stuff, that's very hard to do virtually. Um, and particularly, um, particularly gems are all about observing them. That's why we wear them because we use them as adornment. We like to show off and have this bling coming off of ourselves. Now the hall was closed for quite a bit of time to undergo a renovation, right? Uh, that's sort of an understatement. It was gutted. Gutted. It was taken down to the, so it used to be multi-layered, uh, carpeted thing. It was like an underground space. It was kind of designed to mimic underground mine occurrence. But the, you know, the, what stood out were the illuminated cases of minerals. So now we're back to a more traditional look in terms of a big hall, typical of other halls in the museum with a total uh, almost 25 foot high ceiling. So one of the things you get when you go in there is it, it never looked big. Now it really, you can see how big it is even though it's pretty much the same size as it was before. So that, so we had to literally gut everything, remove everything, uh, clean everything, and then we had to bring in the big objects through a hole in the wall because there was no door base.
big enough for the museum to bring in some of these objects. So that was another factor, and that happens to um, coincide with our building a new building on the far end of where the mineral is now. And in the future, there will be an entrance into the new building through the end of the mineral hall. So there'll be two ways to enter it. The whole idea is to improve traffic in the museum and offer more opportunities. How long did that project take? Well, okay, so the construction part of it started in the fall of 2017. And so we only finished up, I would say about March of uh, this year. But I, I started it in uh, 2014. That's when I started my planning of how we were going to uh, arrange everything and tell the stories that I thought we should tell. How exciting was it for you to walk into that hall when it reopened? It was quite a joy. It was a, culm a great culmination of so much work, a sort of the crowning achievement in my uh, career there because I'm now retired, even though I still work at the museum most of the time. Um, so yes, that was very exciting. It was long awaited. The only um, part of it, which was somewhat disappointing is normally for a great opening, you'd have a great party. <laughs> yeah, dang COVID, right? Dang that COVID. Yeah, so, so uh, we, didn't have a, we didn't have any big parties. We had some nice little events, uh, limited in, in the number of people. What, one of the things that was interesting is initially we were limited to 25 people in the hall because of COVID at any one time. And then when it opened up, so first we started at 150 people, then 250 people, then 350 people. And I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure there's a count now of how many people can be in there, but it's almost as packed as any of the halls were in the past. So that's very, that's really exciting to see people back at the museum enjoying this, uh, enjoying this new hall, enjoying both the beauty and the content. The current limited exhibit is Beautiful Creatures focused on historic jewelry featuring animals. Can you talk a bit about that? Not a lot because it was curated by a colleague from the uh, jewelry and jewelry historian business. So yes, it does have uh, gems in different, or jewelry in, in different forms by different people spanning 150 years of jewelry making, which is the same age as the museum. And um, so uh, all of the material in there has been borrowed. And the whole idea of that gallery is that we can change exhibits in there and bring in borrowed material, things we don't have to tell stories uh, that are bigger than what our collection can, can talk about. You mentioned that you're now retired, but still very much involved with the museum. How long were you with the museum full time? About 45 years. Wow, 45 years, that's pretty yeah. incredible. It's, yeah, it's hard to, hard to uh, fathom. How did you get involved in geology? So I, in, in middle school in Connecticut, I had a good earth science teacher who was, had us read papers and ask questions and do experiments and go out in the field. And I've always been attracted to geology and outcrops, um, driving by or walking by them. So that, that sort of got my early interest. I wasn't much of a collector of anything. I did collect on occasion, but, but not much. I wasn't uh, driven by that bug. And then when I got to college, um, there was a graduate student out hawking the, uh, the earth science course uh, for freshmen. 
and he hooked me and I got in there and it really excited me because um, it was very interesting and it was the sort of thing that my mind has is pretty good at, at get, getting at. One of the features in geology and many other fields, uh, design, architecture, engineering, is seeing things in three dimensions in your mind's eye because you have to kind of figure out how the geology is, is only available or visible at the surface. You have to envision what goes on at depth. Crystals are like same thing, you, they're atoms all put together, but you have to envision how they're connected to one another and how that affects their properties and how they take in different elements. So that's something that I have, a my brain is well uh, oriented to. And so it really did attract me. The other thing is I had this um, silly idea that becoming a geologist would permit me to work outside. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get into it for that and then they, realized that most of the work isn't outside, most of the work's inside. But that was, you know, that was okay. It was, it was, it was an okay delusion. What would you say was your greatest discovery or your most memorable moment in that 45 year span? So I did a, a temporary exhibition on the nature of, called The Nature of Diamonds, which was in 1997. And the opening to that was surreal. I mean, I had to pinch myself I had a, a roommate from college come and said, had a great time, wish you were there because he never saw me the whole night. And uh, it was also the last time I got to see my father. Um, he came, he made a trip up from Houston and he wasn't in really good shape, but he, he masked it pretty well. And a lot of my family got to come and, and see it. So that as sort of like a family celebration that was, was a lot of fun. I, I had hoped that the same thing would happen with the opening of this hall, maybe even better. But um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to do something in the fall and have some fun. I was, there's a particular, there's a promo by the museum, which is uh, New York rocks and it features pictures and get jazzy music. And, and what I said after that is, boy, I can't wait to dance inside the mineral. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Any specimen or object discovery that excited you most? Um, there are too many to talk about. I have relationships with so many of the objects in there, whether they were already there or there were things that, that I acquired. Um, cer certainly some of the things we were able to bring into the hall have, have been great fun. These amethyst geodes, the Sterling Hill slice, a few other uh, of the big objects and even many of the, of the small objects. And then the, the success of being able to tell the stories because um, the teamwork at the museum is really great. So I, you know, I'm just sort of like a design in my head person and I could pick specimens, but putting it all together was a massive work of uh, everybody at the museum and including the design firm RAA. So, uh, it, it really, these things don't happen as a, as a single person's activities. They're, they're a giant teamwork. And I think this came out really great. I hope it lasts a good long time and makes a lot of people both happy and enlightened. What's one of the more common questions you get from people when they find out what you do and your involvement with the museum in this hall? I should be able to answer that one easily, but I'm, I'm having a little... Uh, a little trouble. Uh, typically, they want to know how something much something is worth, 
how much is the Star of India worth? And first off, it doesn't, it's not really useful to come up with some answer because it's, it's temporary, it's whatever. And the other thing is these things aren't for sale. So value requires having a transaction and there ain't gonna be any transaction with most of these. The, the flip side normally is um, wanting to acquire something and not having the wherewithal to do it. So that's, that's more, more typically the challenge is doing that. So living within a budget, which uh, most of us have to do under any circumstances, but when you represent a, a collection like I do, you really want to be able to improve it, enhance it. And we, we do a pretty good job and people help us by donating. And that's really what we rely on. So I'm hopeful that when people see this hall, maybe they'll say, well, you know, I have a better one than you've got and maybe I can give it to you and you'll improve the collection that way. And that, that really is the last time the mineral hall opened, which was right before I got hired. We got lots and lots of gifts after for the several years after that hall opened. And many of those are now incorporated into the new hall. And so I'm hopeful that people will, you know, say these things are great. And those who have collections will say, well, you know, you could do better. And I'll say, fine, help us. Seeing as New York is a very excavated city, can you give us some information on some of the gems and minerals found right in New York? Okay, so there is a case in the new hall um, on the New York City minerals. And it features the so-called subway garnet. So it's about a six and a half inch diameter, really well-formed dark reddish brown garnet that uh, comes from Midtown. And that was discovered in 1885. And anybody who knows their history knows we didn't have subways back then. So it turned out it was being, they were doing a sewer excavation because Essentially, all of Manhattan has been dug up and much of the rest of New York City has been dug up. And so that's why we have, we have about 500 specimens from, from New York City, from all of the boroughs, though some boroughs like Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island are better represented than Queens or, um, or Brooklyn. But so, um, so yes, yeah, so that there used to be, a, a, there is a New York Mineralogical Club that had lots of people and they would visit excavation sites. Now that's pretty difficult to do because, you know, there's so much liability issues and people aren't allowed to go into these excavation sites. So we can't, we don't get as much as uh, was available once upon a time. But yes, we have, we have this display and it shows different minerals arranged in a map of New York City. So you can see different minerals from the different boroughs. But some of the surprising things is there are gem minerals in, in um, Manhattan and the Bronx, mainly garnets, but also amethysts. We even have some chrysoberyl, um, some other kinds of just uh, rock crystal quartz and things of that sort. They're not big. Most of these things are pretty small, maybe a quarter of an inch across or something like that. What's the oldest piece in the hall? Well, the oldest thing in the hall is actually a, a rock which has zircons, which is a zirconium silicate mineral um, that's uh, 4.48 billion years old. Wow. That's essentially uh, the oldest minerals known 
on, on the earth other than things in meteorites. Meteorites are older than that. Other than that, we have a few specimens, some big, from Western Australia, which are over 2 billion years old. And so those, uh, that's pretty old stuff. But things right nearby in New Jersey and north of us are over a billion years old. So the highlands of New Jersey and high, Hudson Highlands of New York, they're between one and 1.2 billion years old. And the cruelly great thing about the New York area is the geology is, is very rich. We've, we sit on the boundary between former continents. So a lot of crashing and bashing has gone on and opening and closing. So the local geology is, is really great. And if we can inspire people to go take a look at stuff, we even give some ideas about going to the, going to Harriman Park in the, in the case on iron minerals from, from uh, Hudson Highlands. Uh, that'd be great for people to do. We wish students could get out more and do this kind of stuff. Unfortunately, it's difficult financially and also because of concerns that, you know, the people who run the schools have about kids being safe. So, but that's how you really learn this stuff. That's how you get excited. So for us at the museum, probably the most interesting place nearby is uh, <clears throat> Central Park. Central Park is fabulous for what you can see in it. And we've been doing some work in Central Park and are starting to publish results on that, which are kind of shaking things up a little bit. This isn't quite what people used to think. Give so me an example of that. How are you shaking things up in that area? Well, there's this material called the Manhattan Schist that everybody says is what's underneath New York. Well, unfortunately, most, most of this stuff is not the Manhattan Schist. It's, it's another rock called the Heartland Formation, which is more represented in... Uh, in Connecticut and uh, in the Bronx, and less so in, in Manhattan. At least that's what we're finding from, from looking at the ages and the chemical signatures in some of the rocks and the minerals. And so that's one of the challenges. I'm sure people listening to this who know something are gonna argue that I'm wrong, but we haven't published yet, so they haven't seen our information yet. So we talked about the oldest object. What's the heaviest object in your hall? Well, I guess the heaviest thing is really this slab of rock from um, the fluorescent specimen. That's 22,000 pounds, roughly. There is a specimen of gar big garnets in, uh, in a black amphibolite from Gore Mountain up in the Adirondacks. That's about 16,000 pounds. So for these big guys, um, just even getting them in there was a job because the floors are not designed to support that much weight. So one of them is hanging from a wall with giant steel bracing to hold it there. The other has actually had reinforcements done in the basement so that where it sits is strong enough uh, to hold itself up. So. And that, again, these things were too big to get in any door and they actually came through a hole in the back of the mineral hall that's now sealed, but will reopen when the Gilder Center opens in 2022. I can only imagine what it must have been like to do that work in terms of reimagining this hall, having to move these heavy pieces in and out. 
Oh, it was it was great engineering and and just watching all this stuff occur and the and the professional people, the riggers who could do this and put down plates on the floor to distribute the load. Yeah, it was it was the whole thing was a giant engineering feat. Even the cases um, that are in there were mostly too big to come through doorways, so they actually had to come through through the side of the uh, through the side of the building. There's another object in the hall. I'm hoping you can tell us about, and that's the butterfly of peace. Okay, the the butterfly of peace is a collection of uh, fancy colored diamonds arranged in the shape of uh, a butterfly. So they're all all of these different colors. One of the things that we couldn't do that um, you can see when properly viewed is that many of these diamonds will fluoresce in ultraviolet light. We we just couldn't arrange to have that happen because we don't have a space dark enough to show them, but we show some pictures of these, these diamonds. So it's a really spectacular um, collection, one of two belonging to the same, same person. And um, his, his goal is to find a way to have them to donated to help promote peace and, and uh, tranquility on the planet. So that's, that's, that's why he named it. The way he did, but it's really it's 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 on the way to the uh, um, beautiful creatures exhibition. You know, right to the left of the entrance, there you can see uh, the butterfly of peace. And how much is the planet represented in the hall in terms of where these objects come from? Is it all around the globe? Yes, clearly it's uh, essentially it's like ninety-five countries and three oceans. So we, we have material from the oceans as well as, as land. And some places are hard to categorize as continents. So there are islands and things of that sort. So the museum's collections, all of our collections are worldwide collections. Certainly we have probably better representation in the United States than some other places, but really the whole world produces, uh, is represented by different minerals. And many countries have spectacular uh, spectacular minerals, and so we want to we want to have a representative collection that represents our planet. Where is the most interesting place that you've been when you've been out in the field? Well, as a geologist, the um, the Earth is my oyster. So just being able to visit different places is a, is a lot of fun. And the other part about it is getting to know people in other places and realizing we're all we're all just people. We all have pretty much kind of the same things that make us happy or sad and want to accomplish things in our lives. So that, that part is great. In terms, one of the materials that I've chased a lot is, is jadeite jade, a variety of jade. So I've been spent a lot of time in Guatemala in the Central America, and then I spent some time in Myanmar. And I'm curious that the places that have some of these minerals are not the easiest ones to travel in. So on the one hand, you get to experience interesting cultures and meet interesting people. But in many cases, it's real work to try and do something in some of these countries. You don't get permission to do things. Traveling can be very difficult. Um, sometimes wheeled vehicles don't get you far enough. So you need to be towed to get across a muddy stream or something like that. So that's, so I've been in a town in Myanmar where they'd never seen anybody with blue eyes before. 
And I was able to stand in the middle of the street with a satellite phone and talk to my wife. I thought that was a surreal moment, totally surreal. That's incredible. I was recently in Hawaii and I was warned, do not take any rocks, do not take anything off of the island. Have you ever encountered that where there was opposition to you even taking samples? Well, we, we have the same situation in Central Park. You're not supposed to take any rocks out of Central Park, but the way you get around that is if you have a rational um, agenda for study, you know, you're not just taking things away as souvenirs, you're taking them because you want to study them and they're going to go into a collection. Things don't go into, you know, into my basement. They wind up at the museum. So you, you make arrangements to collect. So we have made arrangements to collect in Central Park. We have a collection of, of samples, rocks from, from Central Park, and we've been working on them and studying them, presenting information to um, the park so that they can write better guides to their outcrops in the park. Like the same thing is true when I've gone to Guatemala and to Myanmar, almost all of these places, you can't just go around picking up rocks all the time. Um, oftentimes, you, you, the other thing is you can't leave in many cases with rocks in your suitcase. You actually have. So, so in general, when the museum does anything, we have to work with the authorities where we're going to get permission to do this stuff. And again, I would fall back on, these aren't souvenirs. These are specimens that are going and will be reserved forever in our collections. Dr. Harlow, from one George to another, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, I had a good time. Dr. George Harlow is a curator emeritus in the American Museum of Natural History's Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences and Division of Physical Sciences. More info about the Mignone Halls of Gems and Minerals at amnh.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Madison Colombo. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening.